Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. euthanasia with the enthusiasm of Canada. As recently as 2014, euthanasia was outlawed in the country. But then the Supreme Court declared that such laws were unconstitutional. Since that event, Canada has created one of the world's most radical lethal injection euthanasia regimes, with more than 10,000 people now killed by doctors every year. Why has Canada, of all countries, embraced doctor-administered death? My guest today has the answers. Alex Shadenberg is one of the world's premier opponents of euthanasia and assisted suicide. He is the co-founder and executive director of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, founded in 1998 and based in the Canadian province of Ontario. He produced The Euthanasia Deception, a documentary that explores 15 years of euthanasia legalization in Belgium. Shadenberg has traveled the world speaking about the issue, authored countless opinion columns, and moderates the world's most widely read blog devoted to the assisted suicide issue, the link to which can be found in the program notes. He is also the author of Exposing Vulnerable People to Euthanasia and Assisted Suicide. Alex, welcome to Humanize. Thank you, Wesley. It's it's a difficult topic, but it's great being with you. Euthanasia can be such a depressing issue. What convinced you to devote yourself to opposing legalization? Well, I got involved with this, as you know, a long, long time ago. So when I say that I've been doing this work full-time since 1999, it actually, uh, why this issue had a lot to do with the fact that in Canada, we were debating euthanasia and it was, uh, we had the issue of the Latimer case. So Robert Latimer killed his daughter, Tracy, because she had cerebral palsy. And I believe she was 11 years old when he killed her. And he did it, but in, well, it doesn't matter. We're not going to get into how he did it. But anyway, there was, a, there was multiple trials dealing with Robert Latimer. So it was after this, the, after, uh, before the second Supreme Court trial, there was a poll done in Canada showing that about uh, 37% of Canadians thought that what Robert Latimer did was perfectly fine and good, that he was just a, a caring, loving, you know, farmer, farmer, you know, who felt he had no choice, but he had to kill his daughter. And that showed me the uh, eugenic undertones of a culture that were very dangerous. And we have a son uh, uh, who's autistic. And so we were getting involved with the disability community going to these events. And it sort of actually hit home when I read that article about Latimer that I thought, well, someone's got to be doing a lot more about this issue. So, you know, there weren't many people really involved in it. And I decided, well, you know, I'm going to 
I'm going to write about this and get involved with this in a big way. And uh, the rest is history. That's very interesting. You know, most people who get involved in this issue, whether pro or con, have a personal story. I got involved in fighting euthanasia and assisted suicide because a friend of mine killed herself under the influence of Hemlock Society literature. You got involved because you have a special needs child and you saw another special needs child murdered by her father and many in Canada applauding. Um, I think that's uh, that that's uh, how people come out on this issue often has to do with things of that nature. What do you think? I, I actually do think that it really uh, what influences a lot of these people because when I look at uh, even the people in the euthanasia lobby who I know because you you get to know them whether you like it or not, um, a lot of them also have their stories and uh, and so they might have a type of a misguided mercy in the fact that they think that killing is the answer to certain human conditions, uh, but in, in reality, many of them will tell you the story of you know friends or family with human conditions. So I understand this completely. It's interesting in our Canadian sense that when I talk about the issue of Latimer and then what's going on today in Canada, which we're going to talk about in a minute, that it's almost like uh, history has come full circle because, in fact, now uh, there's been a lot of deaths by euthanasia in Canada of people with disabilities. And uh, this is one of the issues that's really uh, awakening, I would just say, the worldwide uh, response to Canada's uh, euthanasia debacle. Yeah, it, since Canada has gone uh, you know, full speed ahead with this, I have finally noticed some uh, mainstream media outlets actually criticizing yep. euthanasia, which I haven't seen for well over 10 years. Well, that's exactly it. Whether that be in Canada or, or worldwide, we've seen so many articles. There wasn't even a Chinese article. I, I was just shocked by it. I had to uh, take that Chinese article and publish it, which was asking, why is Canada killing its poor? And I'm thinking, isn't that interesting? Uh, this uh, this uh, article out of China, the writer was saying, you know, he's all for the concept of euthanasia. It's just that why is Canada killing the poor? And he's told several stories, of course. So these are real stories of what's going on in Canada. So the fact that it's, it's seen worldwide in the U.S., as you notice, there's been quite a few uh, articles that have been very, very well written and uh, and uh, researched on what's going on in Canada. And I think that it sadly is as horrible as these stories are. It's sort of helpful in a sense because people who think that, oh, that can't happen in America – well, obviously speaking, uh, when they read these stories, they realize that uh, America is not immune to the same sort of uh, killing that's going on in Canada. I would have never predicted we'd have gone so far so fast, uh, but I did predict we were going to go this direction. And I'll tell you why very quickly. And that's when we legalized euthanasia in Canada. Um, it was similar to other jurisdictions, but except for the language we used was so undefined. It was so, um, you know, when you read the legislation, my comments constantly to all the members of parliament were, you can't pass this. You haven't defined your terms. Without defining your terms, what do they mean? Like, what does it mean to be experiencing these conditions when you haven't defined it? So if you don't define it, what it means is they get defined by their practice. And that's what we've seen in Canada. But we can I'm sort of jumping ahead and I know you have a schedule for us where we want to go wisely. <laughs> so I'll let you take over. <laughs> I'll just I'll just let you uh, take away, just talk and I don't have to ask any questions. <laughs> well, that does keep it easier in a sense. Yes. <laughs> um, why should our listeners um, care about legalization of euthanasia i mean if people want to die what's the problem with that well it's not actually about people wanting to die in a sense because that's not new there's nothing new about someone who might have suicidal ideation or feel that they don't want to continue living in their certain health condition or whatever that situation might be as human beings the concept of uh, being in a situation where someone might not want to continue living 
that's part of our human history, and it's always been there. The difference is, is when you legalize something like euthanasia, and this is what we've seen. Okay, so let me give you the prime exa- example. Alan Nichols. Alan Nichols died by euthanasia in uh, August of 2019 in, in Chilliwack, B.C. Now, Alan had gone through, when he was a teenager, he had a, he had a, a brain tumor. And they did surgery on the brain tumor, and uh, they removed the brain tumor. But throughout his life then, he was always going through these constant emotional highs and lows, highs and lows. And the family thought that was uh, attributed to the effect of the surgery on his brain when he was a teenager. So he had gone through suicidal ideation many times in his life. There was nothing new about this, where they, well, he might have to spend several weeks in a psychiatric ward in order to protect him. There was nothing new about that. Uh, but he'd always come out of it. The difference now when euthanasia was legal and he was asking to have his life ended, they took that as a request for MAID, medical aid in dying. They call it medical aid in dying, Wesley, to make us feel good about it, right? Right. It's a, it's a nice term. Medical rather than, treatment. Yeah, r- rather than calling it what it is, which is killing. And uh, and euthanasia is a form of – and it's homicide. Uh, and if you argue with me about that, look at the Canada's criminal code. The criminal code, how we legalize euthanasia in Canada is by creating an exception to homicide. So you find our euthanasia act under the homicide act. It's just in there as an exception. Anyway, going back to it. So the difference in 2019 was that uh, Alan's uh, suicidal ideation was taken as a request for euthanasia and he was killed. The shocking thing to the family was is they were begging the doctors to to reconsider. They said, you know, how could you have approved him for euthanasia? This is nothing new for Alan. Alan will be better in a couple of days or maybe a week or so. You know, we're here to visit him now. You know, he, he um, you know, there's a lot, a little bit to the story. But anyway, the fact of it is, is the doctor said, no, no, he's, he was assessed. He was approved. And they killed him on schedule. Uh, and yet this is before we legalized euthanasia for mental illness alone. And yet uh, Alan had no health condition other than his depression, his mental illness. That was now, his only health condition. if the law condition. worked as, it, it, as advertised, those doctors would have been in trouble, right? Well, you can't be in trouble in the Canadian law because the law was written in such a way to uh, make it impossible to prosecute uh, any doctor for doing this. And I hate to say this because I don't want these other doctors thinking that, you know, you can go uh, all out. In fact, they can according to the law. So what the law says in it is that uh, it goes, first of all, I'll give you, it, it says what the doctors must look out for in order to approve someone. And then it says they must be of the opinion that you fit the criteria of the law. You must be of the opinion that you fit the criteria of the law. Well, Wesley, the doctor who killed Alan Nichols was of the opinion that Alan fit the criteria of the law. So when the family actually asked the police to investigate, the police did investigate and they came back and said that no law was broken, nothing wrong was done. In fact, they're correct. No law was broken, but something very wrong was done, but no law was broken uh, because Because it's impossible to break the law. Let me make this clear. It's because if the doctor thinks, well, I think this is a qualified patient, Right. Whether there's no objective way to determine whether, in fact, he no. he was a qualified patient, so it's just the doctor's subjective belief that matters. Absolutely, that's exactly how it works. How the law works is they say this is all about my body, my choice, and of course that's a philosophical lie because when someone else puts lethal drugs into my bloodstream. How is that about my body, my choice when someone else does that? You could say, well, you asked for it, Alex. How the law works is that, yeah, you're right. I have to ask for it. But remember, there's many reasons I might feel my life has lost meaning, purpose, or value. So I might ask for it. And when I okay, I made that statement, I'm going to get back to that in a minute. I might ask for it. The difference is a doctor must agree that my life is not worth living. And once they say, yeah, I agree that he fits the criteria of the law, there's no way, there's nothing in the law that allows you to challenge it. I'll go even one step further. A couple of years ago, we had a case in Nova Scotia. And so what it was is the wife of a man 
was very clear that her husband was going through dementia and he was incapable of making this decision on his own. He was just not possible. And so here he was approved for euthanasia and she challenged it. And we took the case with, with, with her. We hired a lawyer to challenge the law. And in the end, the judge said, there's nothing in the law that gives us a way to challenge this law. There was two doctors who approved this. Therefore, the law goes ahead. And this man died by lethal injection, in spite of the fact that his, his wife was saying, uh, this man is, is not capable of, of, of consenting. There's just no pay, but way did, he's Did they capable. do an independent medical examination to determine whether he had the capacity to consent? Well, actually, they did. But what was even worse about it, if you actually looked at who they asked to do the uh, the assessments, it was the big time euthanasia doctors. So, you know, the lawyer came back to me saying, well, if you saw these assessments, these are like, you know, the biggest names in the pro-euthanasia lobby who did an assessment. And so, you know, it was obvious what they were going to say. And the other thing is, you know, these things are very difficult questions anyway, aren't they, Wesley? It's hard to know. Like, if you don't know this person, how are you going to say that they're incompetent to make decisions someone might seem competent in a sense but then they're actually quite incompetent what am i saying is, is that uh, there's lots of reasons why his wife was saying the man is incompetent and she she could explain them clearly to the court this is what my husband's doing a b c d e f g boom the man is not competent anymore he's not the same as he was before uh nonetheless he was approved and he died by euthanasia. Now, we did get our day in court. We did. We actually got a, uh, an injunction at first to prevent it. But in the end, the, the Court of Appeal said, no, nope, no, there's nothing in the law that allows us to intervene here. Therefore, the euthanasia goes ahead. Uh, and, the Canadian uh, so. Minister of Health recently said that suicidal people are protected from euthanasia. But if you want euthanasia, by definition, aren't you suicidal? Well, you know, the crazy thing is, is that suicidal people are not protected from euthanasia. There's nothing in the law to protect them from euthanasia. Uh, if I'm going through a suicidal ideation and uh, I have some sort of health condition that would be considered uh, somehow acceptable to someone that, yes, I should have euthanasia, then obviously speaking, I'll have euthanasia. There's nothing in the law to protect suicidal people. And that's a sort of a statement to make them feel better. In fact, our justice minister made the statement, uh, I guess it was like November or something, to the parliamentary committee that was looking at first expansions to euthanasia that uh, at first he said he was opposed to euthanasia for mental illness and he thought it was a bad idea but then he realized he said that uh, death by suicide is worse it's messier than death by maid medical aid and dying euthanasia therefore he's changed his mind and he realizes that yes you know death uh, by maid for mental illness is a good idea because, as he said, it's less messy than suicide. You know, this kind of stuff you can't make up, actually. You couldn't you, – if you were to write some sort of, uh, you know, uh, skit about this, someone would say, oh, that's really, you know, too much for me to handle. You're really pushing the envelope. And yet this is the kind of thing we see. Same with these stories about euthanasia. Like someone with uh, multiple chemical sensitivities dying by euthanasia. That happened in February of, uh, of 2022. That was actually the first case that really started blowing open the media's awareness of there's a problem here. This woman was 51 years old. Her only issue was multiple chemical sensitivities, meaning she needed a clean place to live. She need, she was in uh, social housing. She was um, because of her reactions to uh, certain uh, cleaning fluids and smells and things. She wasn't able to have a, have, she wasn't able to hold down a job because she was, uh, you know, breaking out and reacting to these things constantly. But she needed a clean place to live, and instead she died by lethal injection. How could you approve her for lethal injection when she had no, 
irremediable medical condition. What she had was a condition that needed special care. That's what she had, and she died by euthanasia. These kind of things you couldn't make up. You couldn't you couldn't come up with that and say, oh, that's what's going to happen. And, no, they'd say, you're crazy. They'd say, Alex, you're crazy. Wesley, you must be crazy for thinking that that could happen. That's what they'd say to you. And yet, yet this is exactly what's going on. Well, in my first uh, anti-euthanasia piece in Newsweek magazine in 1993, I predicted that it would lead to organ harvesting uh, <laughs> as a plum to yeah. society uh, to go along with euthanasia. Does that happen in Canada? In fact, yeah, it's it's actually a regular part of our whole uh, euthanasia situation because uh, organ donation after euthanasia has become a regular occurrence. Now, uh, most, or at least the majority of euthanasias are now happening at home, and they, they think they've come up with a way to deal with that issue because it's hard to donate your organs if you died at home. Uh, so, you know, these are all sort of things, but nonetheless, uh, it is directly connected. In fact, here in Ontario, the Ontario Trillium um, it's just the um, Trillium Network, which deals with the whole question of organ donation and everything. Uh, they um, they have a whole system of having trained people in hospitals. So let's say you had a massive accident. If you have signed your organ donor card, they're the ones who are going to arrange for that organ donation to happen quickly and effectively, etc. Or maybe they have to speak to a family member. They're the ones who arrange that. They're now, of course, approaching people at their bedsides who have approved, been approved for euthanasia to see if, Let's yes, they should really have organ clear donation. For people. If somebody says, I want euthanasia, and, they, and the doctors sign off on it, they don't get suicide prevention services. No, not at all. The, no, the, no. Uh, the fellow, Mr. Nichols, didn't get suicide prevention services when he was in the no. hospital asking to be killed. The uh, poor woman who had the allergies didn't get suicide prevention service, didn't get the kind of uh, intervention that would have made her want to, allowed her to want to continue to live. And we've seen other cases like that of people who uh, just said, look, all I need is, I think I, I recall one case, I need one of these mechanical stairs because I'm disabled and I can right. go up. Yeah. And, and and instead they said, well, no, we'll give you euthanasia. You yeah, you're had, talking about the, the veteran, Christine Gauthier. Yeah. 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 And, and you had veterans with a PTSD, yes. a Canadian veterans who've been in Afghanistan and so forth, came back with PTSD. And the veterans uh, groups or social worker suggesting euthanasia. Yes. Yeah, that's and, exactly, and, and yeah, go on. Yeah, that's it's crazy. There's more to it. it, it you, you, as I say, you can't make this stuff up. And the crazy thing about the uh, veterans with PTSD, um, a lot of veterans never. They, they they certainly have volunteered to enter the military and be trained in the military and spend time in the military. But did they actually want to go fight in Afghanistan? Is this something that they were looking forward to? They did so willingly. Then they are experiencing PTSD for some horrible things that happened in their life. And they're being told by Veterans Affairs that, no, you should be asking for euthanasia. You know, that man who did that, who, who called Veterans Affairs for, with his PTSD, he ended up going to the U.S., just so you know. He went I to the U.S. for treatment. Yes, really? he left Canada. He went to the U.S. for treatment. He wanted treatment. And he was so upset that they were saying to him, you should have euthanasia. Now, remember, he's not the only one. That's the other thing. He's not the only one. But he went to the U.S. for treatment, and he received treatment in the U.S. for his PTSD. I'm hoping he's starting to feel better because the problem with PTSD is these are very difficult things to deal with, as you know. Sure. These are things you've experienced that you can't seem to get out of your, your memory, and you relive these things all the time. And uh, so this is not the first generation that's experienced these horrible PTSD experiences. Nonetheless, we now, at first, there was the Minister of Justice, I mean, sorry, the Minister of Veterans Affairs that says, well, that was a one-off. That was a terrible thing. You're right. You should not be offering 
euthanasia, someone who's not asking for it, who, who's seeking help for PTSD. No, that was terrible. That was a one-off, though. And then we found out, no, 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 there was at least five of them, and at least uh, two people have died by euthanasia who had PTSD, and they were driven towards euthanasia instead. And then you had the case of Christine Gauthier, who was a Paralympian, who was a, a veteran who had became injured in, in uh, her veterans. Uh, as a veteran, she, she was injured in war, so therefore she became a Paralympian. And all she was asking for was a wheelchair ramp. And she, they were told, well, we can't offer you a wheelchair ramp or, you know, we don't have it in our budget, but you can have euthanasia. Well, how, how uncaring, how ridiculous is that? And who's the type of person to think that, that that's anything you'd ever say to somebody, but you see, it's so normalized now. Yeah. And that's what's gotten me. Uh, and, and the reason I wanted to do this program on Canada, because, uh, it has become so normalized and enthusiastically embraced yes. by the people. Uh, I want to get to that, but first I want to take a step back and let uh, tell us about the work of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. Well, the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition deals with this issue in a, a complete way, meaning we, we're both uh, we're involved politically, we're involved educationally, and then we, we have uh, you know, a 1-800 helpline that we're, we're connected to. And so we're, we're working uh, trying to help people. We're working trying to deal with the politics, which is a very difficult thing to do under this current government if it's like this government really isn't – doesn't this current government really doesn't care about, you know, our position at all, I'm sorry to say, uh, and also dealing with the uh, awareness and what's going on and dealing with people in general. So, you know, we receive phone calls and comments from people constantly, and we're dealing with that. You know, I've been receiving a lot of calls lately from people. Now, I was originally, it was family members. So originally, it was family members calling us saying, you know, my dad is um, has been seeking euthanasia. How do we talk to him? How do we try and convince him not to do this? And so you're dealing with someone in these situations. You're trying to help them come to the, you know, the right direction and how to how to approach him, how to speak to him, how to convince him that life until natural death is the better way. And uh, but lately, you know, we've got calls from people who were uh, actually approved for euthanasia. So there was the man in St. Catharines who uh, had a severe back pain and he was in the local newspaper saying he had been approved for euthanasia because he was not getting the medical treatment he needed. All I'm getting is analgesics and it's not helping me. I've got the severe back pain. It, you know, it, it mitigates my pain, but it doesn't end my pain. I need surgery. I need, I need a true treatment and I'm not getting it. Well, that's, sorry, Canada. I'm sorry. He ended up calling us up because he said, you know, I don't want euthanasia. I've been approved for euthanasia. I don't actually want it. What I want is medical treatment. So uh, the one woman I work with has been helping him and going to different doctor's appointments. And we got him involved with uh, an organization that helps people specifically in that similar situation. So now he's working with uh, doctors who specifically do surgery on backs and have a, a specific experience. We're hoping that um, We're hoping that he's going to be able to get better. But, you know, it's interesting how that goes because, you know, originally it was just people calling, calling us who are friends or family members who might be supporters of our organization and upset that a family member is considering euthanasia. And now it's – we've had several calls from people actually who, who were approved. And, I saw uh, a study uh, about Canada that said only 15% of Canadians have access to quality palliative care, pain control, and yet <laughs> nobody seems to be uh, prevented from having euthanasia. Uh, in in the same sense, I I, I don't understand that. Uh, it's actually worse than what you just said, my friend, and that's because uh, Health Canada made a commitment. They said that uh, there's a, a type of a right to euthanasia. Now there actually wasn't. The Supreme Court 
came close to saying that in the Carter decision, but it didn't quite say that. So there isn't actually a right to euthanasia. But Health Canada says that you have a, a right to euthanasia. If you request euthanasia and, and you are approved for euthanasia, you have a right to it. But you have no right to palliative care. So if you think this through, you've got no right to care to mitigate your pain and suffering to die a natural death. But you have a right to lethal injection. That's pretty insane, actually. I'm sorry, that's pretty insane. But, you know, we've had a secondary problem with euthanasia. The doctors are being told that they have to be involved with referring. They have to be involved with, they have to be complicit in the act. They don't have to do the act, but they have to be complicit by doing what you call a direct referral. Effective referral. uh, Yeah, yeah, an effective referral in Ontario. So, you know, I know several top palliative care doctors, people who had given quite a few years of life to being a palliative care doctor who were completely opposed to euthanasia. And because they're dealing with a lot, of course, dying people, because they're dealing with palliative care doctors, they felt that they were being pressured to be complicit in the act, so they've left palliative care. I know of one in particular who uh, who is in uh, you know the Toronto region who was an active palliative care doctor for at least ten years, very active in it, and now he's he started a pain control clinic because he has his specialty in pain control, and so he does a he has a pain control clinic, uh, and he's focusing on pain control but not palliative care because he says I'm not going to be complicit in euthanasia, I'm not going to be part of this, and because of that I have to leave palliative care. Well, it only makes the situation worse then. Yep. You have because fewer you doctors have a, providing this this service. That, that's exactly it. So in fact, right. it gets worse. And on top of it, the pro euthanasia types for years were trying to move into palliative care because they were trying to make the palliative care organizations become pro euthanasia. That that was their goal. Well, now you have a situation of the exodus of people who would say, "I don't want to be complicit with euthanasia, so I have to leave palliative care." I know a few others who left and said, "I'm just going to be a family physician now." I started out as a family physician. I became an expert in palliative care. I did that for many years. Now I'm going to be a family physician again because I don't want to be complicit in euthanasia and they're forcing me to, therefore I'm going to leave. So it's a serious problem because effective palliative care is actually harder to find now, not easier to find. And yet euthanasia is becoming so popular. This is the medical conscience issue. And and as I understand it, uh, particularly in Ontario, uh, if there was actually a court case where yes. a, uh, uh, some Catholic doctors and other doctors brought a lawsuit saying, we have a right under the Canadian Charter to freedom of, of conscience and religion. That's the actual right. term, freedom of conscience and religion. And forcing yep. us to participate in euthanasia violates our freedom of conscience and our freedom of religion. And right. the judge said, yes, indeed it does, but there's a more important right, which I would has- hasten to note is not in the Charter, and that is the right to access all legal medical treatments that are paid for by the government. And so he said, well, that right, which he made up, trumps the right that's actually in the charter. And if you don't want to participate in euthanasia by either referring, basically soliciting a different doctor to kill the patient. That's right. Yeah. Uh, then you then you should get out of medicine is basically what the judge said and and that is held and and the medical association in ontario the college there has supported that ruling right so you actually you actually called it exactly right wesley your your legal mind is very good so that's exactly what happened uh, that in fact uh, conscience and religion are in the charter so the canada's charter lists conscience as a right of course it doesn't list the right to access to all medical treatment as the right. It doesn't list that, but it lists conscience. Nonetheless, uh, these doctors were told that um, 
they, they actually the, the court decision more said that they thought that this was an equal balance that you don't have to do the act but you would have to refer but of course if you are opposed to killing somebody then you're also going to be opposed to sending them on the train to the killer right, right. well you're supposed to, to doctors are supposed to find the killer that's right. That's exactly it. Yeah. You'd be opposed to that. I'm not going to send you to the killer if I'm opposed to killing you. And right. that's exactly what these doctors were saying. Now, we've lost several good doctors. I was just visiting a uh, – I was at a, a get-together in late November, and a friend of mine um, was a physician in a small town right near where I live, and, I, and he was very much against euthanasia. And he told me that, um, oh, I've got good news, Alex. Uh, my medical license has now been recognized in Ohio. I had applied a few months ago. They've not recognized it, so I'm going to be going to Ohio to become a physician there. And this guy's only in his 40s. So he's uh, you know, a doctor who we lose out of Ontario who is going to be now uh, – who's, who's now already in Ohio as a physician. And he and his family have left Canada because his medical uh, license is uh, fully – uh, recognizable in other places, and yet he will not be forced in Ohio to have to refer someone for death in any way, shape, or form. Um, his conscience rights will be protected. You you mentioned Health Canada previously. Is that the Ministry of Health? The Ministry of Health, yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, absolutely. Why it doesn't Health Canada yeah. care about the brain drain that you're discussing? Because I could see oncologists who might have another five yeah. or ten years uh, in practice saying, you know, I don't want to be part of this. I'm I'm retiring earlier than I had pl- anticipated. Yeah. Uh, palliative care doctors moving. Any doctor who deals with a serious issue, uh, perhaps moving to the United States, uh, which is uh, to our benefit because we need more doctors. Why isn't the Ministry of Health concerned about a brain drain? Uh, they should be concerned very much about a brain drain, especially with the fact that uh, post-COVID, we've had serious uh, uh, shortages of medical workers, whether they be doctors, nurses, etc. And uh, this uh, this serious shortage is, uh, has been a problem because uh, quite a few medical people retired early because of COVID. They felt that uh, it was too much that was being asked of them, etc., and, and uh, that's just one story I told you. A few years ago, I was speaking in Northern Ontario, and this physician came up to me, and he told me, Alex, this is after my talk. He comes up to me and says, Alex, I'm in the process of retiring. And he looked really good. He says, I'm only in my early 60s, but he says, I'm never going to refer anybody for euthanasia. And I'm being told I'm going to have to do referrals for euthanasia. I'm never going to do that. He says, and I don't need the money. I've had a good career. I, I, was, have, I had no plans to retire, but when this uh, situation has come up, I decided there's no use continuing as a physician. So he's retired as a physician a few years ago already. And he was only in his early 60s, so he might have had a good five, ten years in him where he would have been an active and he, and when you spoke to him, he was uh, one of these guys you could tell was fully with it. It's not like it wasn't a, he was, oh, well, maybe it's a good time to retire. No, he wasn't like that at all. And this is what you get. You're exactly correct. Why are they not dealing with the property? Because the concept of uh, actually allowing true freedom is a serious problem in our culture. You know, they would say that uh, not providing death as a physician is denying someone's freedom to a legal healthcare service. Well, what about the doctor who has the freedom to say, I'm not going to participate in that? Well, these freedoms are going to be ignored. We have a secondary problem in our health system in Canada because of the universal system. Doctors aren't technically... Um, wards of the state, or not, they're not technically employees of the state, but they're sort of seen that way because they're paid by the state to do an act. Therefore, they're being told this is our policy, and therefore you must, you know, you must follow that policy. So Finally, this is a this is a potential consequence of a single payer health system. 
For sure, absolutely, without a question. If you're not willing to follow the rules, then of course you're going to be in trouble. And this is a serious thing. Like a lot of the physicians who who have uh, been defending their conscience rights, they recognize that someday they may be brought before the Ontario College of Physicians, and the tribunal will tell them, "Well, you did something wrong." Now they might not lose their medical license, but you're going to be brought before a tribunal because you refused to kill somebody. Yeah, and, and yeah, let, let's you, think about that. Let's and, think about and just, that. Just uh, a few years ago, uh, that would have been illegal in Canada, and in fact, the laws against euthanasia were found to be constitutional in a case called Rodriguez, uh, which happened uh, some time ago. Um, tell us about that case and what changed so that a different Supreme Court actually came to a different result. Well, Rodriguez was the case in 1993. So Sue Rodriguez had uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and uh, she was asking for the right to euthanasia. And that went to the, through the courts and up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they decided on a five to four decision, so it was close, that she did not have the right to euthanasia, that in fact uh, the, uh, the laws were constitutional, and also they said that uh, based on possible abuse, uh, that it would be wrong to change our laws on euthanasia or assisted suicide in Canada. And so that was the five to four decision. So what changed was obviously there was a shift in who was on the Supreme Court of Canada. <laughs> and that's honestly, that's the biggest switch. Like I can give you the history of it. And in fact, you know, someday I might write the story, but uh, the lower court decision on euthanasia was made by Justice Lynn Smith. Justice Lynn Smith. Uh, was uh, this is former, in the Rodriguez case? It, no, this is in the Carter case. Sorry. Okay. The lower court case decision was made by Justice Lynn Smith. Justice Lynn Smith had been the the um, how would you say the dean of the British Columbia Medical School, but she was also one of the key people in the whole. Um, uh, there used to be this whole uh, Leaf. Leaf was a legal body that used to receive money from the federal government of Canada to challenge laws, and she was a key person in LEAF. So she was known as a radical progressive, who because that's what LEAF was, a radical progressive. So when she became a judge in BC, she ended up getting this euthanasia case, and there's a whole story, but she got a call to her so that she was the one who got to hear it. It was the last case of her existence. She decided after deciding in Carter that euthanasia was going to be legalized, etc., and she created the case uh, and made her decision. She retired right after that. So this was her swan song. Her goal in life was to legalize euthanasia. There's a whole of politics we could talk about. Nonetheless, you have this other factor that happened with euthanasia in Canada. And one of the factors is this uh, Moses Nimer. So if you read articles about this, he used to own City TV. So when he sold City TV and got his billion dollars, he got involved with all these other things. But one of the things he did is he started getting behind this whole movement to legalize euthanasia. And he put a lot of money behind it. So you might have noticed in the, in the uh, you know, between 2010 and 2015, there was you know, a slew of stories that kept them going through the media, one after another, after another. And of course, the answer to these stories was we have to legalize euthanasia. And, and some of these stories were really heart-wrenching. Of course, they're human stories, so they should be heart-wrenching, right? Who was behind the creation of this whole movement, right? This whole way of doing things. Who had the media connections? Well, it was Moses Neimer who did. He was the one who made a lot of that happen. 
And so we have this whole movement where you had this constant story model and they did that on purpose. So it was like, you know, um, water treatment that's constantly dripping on you. That's exactly what was happening in Canada. So you were getting a shift in the culture previous to legalization. And the sad thing was, is earlier in the debate, like around 2010, we had a bill in 2010 that was defeated in parliament, 228 to 59. So it was a euthanasia bill. It was defeated in Parliament 228 to 59. I was heavily involved with getting that defeated. After that was when the euthanasia lobby decided we're going to go to the courts because Parliament won't legalize. And then what happens, of course, you get this whole movement of Justice Smith, etc., and all that happens. And, but let's get down to it. Go, the, the media, media going went pro along with euthanasia. It, and they never provide uh, an alternative. There was no narrative. alternative. Yeah. If you go back to those articles, you Google them, you pull up those links, and you start reading them, you'd say, these are all one-sided articles, one after another after another. And they were all preordained as to how they were going to be presented, how they were going to be. And a lot of them had video connections to them. So it was all like pre-worked. There was a lot of money that went into this to make it happen. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned because, of course, we see the same thing happening in other places. You know, you right. see the same thing going on in different places in the U.S. You might even and, call um, it propaganda. Certainly, it is propaganda. It's yes. organized propaganda, and um, well, you got to give them credit for doing it effectively because they had the money to do it. You know, to do that kind of work takes a a lot of money. It takes a, a lot of money. Our current government is actually sort of in bed with dying with dignity. Uh, the uh, current president of the Liberal Party of Canada is uh, the daughter of a uh, former Senator Cowan. Senator Cowan is the president and involved with dying with dignity canada he's now the president of dying with dignity canada the euthanasia lobby group he's a former liberal senator and his daughter is the president of the liberal party of canada so you know it's it's the it's it's pretty darn close together it's uh and of course it's a liberal government under trudeau who at least he's got nice hair <laughs> so, so we could talk so the, more about these stories though like it's it's insane what's going on in my country so, so the carter case went from this uh ex-judge to the Supreme Court. The judge yeah. had been in uh, British Columbia to the Supreme Court, and, and they ruled, was it nine to zero? It was a unanimous decision. Now, there's many reasons for that. We have to understand that Beverly McLaughlin, who was the Supreme Court Chief Justice, was also the last judge left from the case from Rodriguez. So she was a younger judge in the Rodriguez decision in 93, and she voted in favor of euthanasia. This was a lifelong goal, goal of hers to overturn Rodriguez. And there's a lot of factors involved with this uh, when we consider people like Jocelyn Downey in Canada. Jocelyn Downey was the assistant, okay? So she was in the Supreme Court at the time of 1993 assisting with McLaughlin, okay? So you've got these key connections going on and uh, lifelong goals to overturn the uh, the Rodriguez decision. And so that's how it comes to be. There's another couple of factors, but I don't think we should get into it because, uh, um, you know. We could go for an hour. Iffy. We could go for an hour. <laughs> but what I will say is what we have in Canada now is we first legalized euthanasia through Bill C-14. And Bill C-14 said that your, your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. So they said it had to be someone who was terminally ill, but they never defined it. So they use this term that your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. And whether you were part of the euthanasia lobby or the anti-euthanasia lobby, whether you were a member of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition or Dying with Dignity, both of our newsletters were saying the same thing. That statement has no meaning. The statement has no meaning. It was yep. not defined. It lacked meaning. So we already had wide open 
euthanasia going on as it was developing. It was developing by its, uh, you know, one case at a time would get approved. And then, well, if you could do it for that, well, then you must be able to do it for this and this. So we had this expansion going on very fast early on. And then there was the case that was uh, the Truchon case in Quebec, which struck down that your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. What's important about that case is that was a lower court decision. It's the first time in Canadian history that a lower court decision on a serious, serious policy issue was not appealed. I see. Well, that happens. It's in, always in this, appealed. That happens in this country sometimes too, where the fix is in, you get the ruling you want and then yeah. say, oh, well, I'm not going to appeal and there's nothing anyone can do about it. I argued that they, I, I begged them to appeal it for the very simple reason that if you actually read the Truchon decision, you'd be shocked by what the judge said. If you were a person with a disability reading that decision, you would say, did the judge hate people with disabilities? Because she yeah. basically, basically explained that there are definitely certain lives that are not worth living. And you would say, well, that only comes up in you know countries in the 40s. That we're at, we're at war with, yeah. <laughs> but no, it was seriously a terrible decision, and for that reason alone, for that reason alone, it should have been appealed. Even if in the end they came up with the same crazy decision, it should have been appealed. But nonetheless, what does it mean? It means that once that's gone, that means what you need to be approved for euthanasia in Canada is you need to have an irremediable medical condition. That means everyone with, with a disability essentially gets approved because. To have a, a disability means this is this is your health condition. This is your reality, whether it's a health condition or just a reality of your physical condition. You have an irremediable condition. That's why it's a disability. So Therefore, somebody they all with qualify. diabetes could be euthanized? Somebody well, as with- you know, we had that case in Ontario of the 23-year-old young man with diabetes who was approved for euthanasia. And his wife, his, sorry, not his wife, his mother went crazy about that. And we helped her stop that euthanasia death. If it wasn't for his mother, her name was Margaret, going absolutely nuts on them for proving her son and scheduling his euthanasia death at the euthanasia clinic, the maid house, then uh, he would have died. And what happened is, is not only did the doctor who had approved the death, who was willing to do the death, not only did he decide not to do the death, no other doctors came forward saying they were, were, were willing to do the death because no one wanted to be bumping into uh, his mother, who was just so angry. How could you approve my son with diabetes for euthanasia? How could this be? How did they make that decision? It was insane to think about it. But yes, this is exactly what you get. Yes. And you've got the elderly woman in the nursing home who had been isolated uh, because of the COVID policy, yes. had gone into despair. Then they uh, announced a second um, COVID isolation for people in nursing homes. And she said, give me uh, death instead uh, because she wanted to be with her family. And the irony, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that the authorities let the family be with her when she was killed, but would not have let them be with her for her to live. All of that is true. And the fact if it is, is that, uh, yes, she was approved because she originally in the first isolation, she had asked for euthanasia, but they said she didn't have a condition that they could qualify her with. But during the second time, now I guess her, her uh, she was in her, she was, I think in her early nineties, her, her health condition had, had deteriorated enough that they said, oh, then that's approvable now. Uh, but the fact of it is, is she wasn't dying. She wasn't terminally ill. She didn't have any conditions like the that. The real but reason she was she didn't want to be isolated. Absolutely. And you the know, answer to that was don't let let her see people. 
That's exactly. But I think this this really brings us to an important point, and that is why people actually ask for this death. Yeah. And you know, we're sold in the media that this is all about you know ending suffering. And I don't like to talk about suffering because I'm a human being and I don't want to suffer either. So I get it. They say it's all about ending suffering. It's all about providing one's freedom of choice. Uh, it's not about choice. It's not about autonomy, and it's not about ending suffering. Because you know, almost all the cases I've dealt with, and there's been so many now, it's almost always tied to someone feeling that their life has lost meaning, purpose, or value, or they've become very depressed almost every time. And so, yes, they might be asking for it because they have a severe health condition, A, B, or C, whatever that might be. And all that is true, but that's not why they're actually asking for it. And so you do see that a little bit in the data. So the data is not exactly accurate. So when the last uh, euthanasia report came out, it showed that there had been over 1,700 people who had asked for euthanasia based on loneliness in Canada. But that, that's because they named that as their primary reason. Uh, they might have had, uh, who knows, cancer or whatever it else. But why were they actually asking for it? People say, oh, these people are in great pain. There are a few key cases of people in, in great pain. That's true. There's a few cases like that. And I would say they should have received better care. There's no need to kill them. We can give them better care. But for the most part, it's not because they're in pain. You, you see that as, as a tiny number, actually, in the data. It's because of uh, mainly because of the, these social questions. You know, a lot of people feel at times that there's no purpose to live anymore. They have no meaning, no reason to continue living. And they have a condition that approves them. It's the same reason why the uh, euthanasia lobby was saying, don't listen to Alex Schadenberg. He's lying to you. These people are not being approved for euthanasia based on homelessness. They're not being approved based on poverty. They're not being approved because they can't receive medical treatment. Well, they're right and they're wrong. They're right in the fact that they were being approved because they had a medical condition, such they had a disability. They may have had uh, um, multiple sclerosis for many, many years, and so they were being approved based on multiple sclerosis. Correct. Uh, they may have been approved for a different reason. But why were they asking for it? They were asking for it because of their poverty, because of their homelessness. We had a recent case in, in really Ontario, this guy asking for euthanasia because he's homeless. He's been homeless most of the time for the last eight years, and he feels that there's no purpose anymore. He has no hope that he's ever going to be in a normal existence, living in a home, being able to take a shower in the morning. He, he's did lost he get, total did he, hope. Did, was he approved? He, uh, he's not been approved yet. In fact, we, we contacted the, um, the, uh, the person who was the reporter. We asked him, please have him contact us. We're willing to help him. We're willing to give him first to last month's rent if that's it. Um, you know, it's, it's a legitimate thing he's going through here. Uh, nonetheless, um, I look at also the case of, of Amir Farsou in uh, St. Catharines, who was uh, a man with a disability, who's the place he was living in was sold. So how it works in Ontario is we've got um, uh, rent controls, maybe similar to what you have in the U.S. He, there's rent controls, but if the place is sold, they can ask you to leave because they're going to fix the place up or they're going to re, uh, maybe they're going to live in the place themselves. Right? So he was told he had to move out because the place was being sold, but he couldn't find a place because of his disability benefit that he could afford anywhere. And that is not uncommon. That's very common because once you leave a place, then they can jack up the rent. But when you're, when you're still in a place, the rents have to be controlled. So you can afford to live in the place you're in. You just can't find a new place if you have to move. And that's where he was in. So he was approved for euthanasia because he was in fear of homelessness. And uh, I'm very, he was very fortunate that people had a heart and donated money to allow him to find a place to live. So a man was approved for homeless, I mean, for euthanasia. People but, found out here, about the uh, found yeah. out about the 
the pending death, donated money so that he could find another place, and then he chose not to die. He didn't want to die. And in all the media articles, he says he didn't want to die, but he didn't want to be homeless. And because of his disability, he qualified for euthanasia. And so they, they had didn't no interest even, in dying. They didn't care about the real reason. They just cared no. about the pretext. Correct. And it's not hard to find doctors willing to kill you. Here's the problem. Uh, I'll give you an, a, another example. There was a woman in Ottawa who had been turned down by five doctors for euthanasia. They all said she didn't qualify. So she contacted Maid House in Toronto. Maid House is the euthanasia clinic in Toronto. The Maid House approved her, so she took a train to Toronto to die. Well, obviously, the Maid House is far more open to killing than the doctors in Ottawa who she knew were. There was the case of the uh, of the man who Did they was kill also... Did they kill they, her? They killed her. Oh, yeah, she, she died. Absolutely. There was the case of the man in Ontario who was determined to be incompetent for euthanasia. And he then contacted Dying with Dignity, and they got him in contact with Dr. Ellen Weeb in Vancouver, who also runs a euthanasia clinic. She then approved him via Zoom, a Zoom connection similar to this idea. She approved him based on Zoom. She spoke to him and approved him. He then flew to Vancouver. She picked him up at the airport. Nice of her to do that. She brought him to her clinic, and she killed him. Now, this is the man who was turned down for euthanasia in Ontario. Why? Because the doctor said he was incompetent. Now, just because he's incompetent doesn't mean he couldn't get his body onto the plane and fly to, fly to Vancouver. But to me, this is, the, this is the insanity of the whole thing, because the law only requires two approvals. And Dr. Weeb has got a friend who signs off on all her sure. approvals, so there's not an issue here. I, I call this phenomenon doctor shopping. You Absolutely. go to the, idea, the ideologue doctor who doesn't necessarily practice in the uh, specialty that you uh, for your illness, uh, and then they always have a pal who'll just sign off on it. And this gets back to the original point you made early in the discussion, that if in the opinion of the doctor they qualify, there's nothing that can be done to gainsay that. There's nothing that can be done in the law to do anything about it. So this There's is nothing. a wild, this is wild euthanasia in which the most radical ideologue can can determine the parameters of people who were killed. Right. The same thing happened with the Donna Duncan case. Donna Duncan was in BC uh, during COVID. She had a, she got in a car accident and she had some uh, head injury from the car accident. But because of COVID, she wasn't able to get rehabilitation, and she was having headaches constantly. She was going through a lot of suffering. And you can imagine, she was going through suffering. No one's arguing that. She got approved for MAID and she died by euthanasia and her daughters were shocked. Her daughters were shocked. They went to the police. The police did an investigation. They said, similar to the case of Alan Nichols, no law was broken. No well, of course, the doctor who killed Donna Duncan said, I was of the opinion that Donna fit the criteria of the law. Right. That's all it takes. Done. Over. Yep. It's done. It's and insanity. And Sorry, the, insanity. Um, it is insanity, and the uh, the law was actually expanded by the national parliament. The reasonable, foreseeable of death, uh, ludicrous <laughs> uh, quote, strict guide uh, protection is gone, and now uh, people who are with disabilities can get euthanasia. People yep. with chronic illnesses can get euthanasia, and supposedly in March of this year. Uh, it's supposed to be open to the mentally ill, although that is now being, there's some pushback on that. Tell us about that. 
Okay, so Bill C-7 was passed in March of 2021, and it allowed for euthanasia for mental illness also. So it did several things in that bill. As you were right, it took out the natural death being reasonably foreseeable, so you don't have to be terminally ill. They created a two-tier law. So if you are considered terminally ill, you can have a same-day death. You can go to the doctor and die that very day by euthanasia. So they got rid of the 10-day waiting period, they said. That, that would be fine. If you're dying anyway, you can die the same day. But for those who aren't dying... So somebody's a- wife could have... Uh, an affair that makes them want to kill themselves. But if they've got an underlying condition, they can say, I'm terminally ill, kill me today. Well, they don't even have to be terminally ill. They have to have an irremediable medical condition. And as you know, there's lots of disability friends that you know and I know who, if you were to assess them, they have an irremediable medical condition. So absolutely, sadly, they all would qualify. Anyway, so they can have a same-day death, yes. But if you're not terminally ill you don't have a terminal condition, yes, then you'd have a 90-day waiting period. So yes, you were right. If they were terminally ill or had a condition that was considered terminal, they could have a same-day death. But on top of it, then they said the euthanasia for mental illness was approved. Now, just recently, just a few days ago, now in early February, uh, the Minister of Justice said that uh, they were going to delay the implementation of euthanasia for mental illness until, um, until March the 17th, 2024. Now, there's a big caveat here. And I think he's playing a game with me, and I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. But it's very difficult to get legislation through by March 17th, 2023. So if you consider the fact that it was Canada's Senate that gave us the euthanasia for mental illness, I don't want to go talk too long about this. I'm just telling you that's what happened. It was mm-hmm. Canada's Senate who refused to pass Bill C-7 without the caveat of euthanasia for mental illness. That the Senate, if they were to hold up this legislation, then in fact, we would end up with euthanasia for mental illness on March 17th, 2023 anyway. So, unless they pass the bill uh, in when we're recording this about a month, a little yep. more than a month, mental Ill, mentally ill people will qualify for euthanasia starting on March 17th of this year. Correct. If the, the uh, bill March House's the bill is, goes yep. through the Senate, which were the advocates for mental illness being euthanized, uh, then it'll be put off for one year. That's the current Correct. state of situation. That's the current state. Now, the situation is a, a lot worse when we start examining the fact that people with disabilities were being approved for euthanasia based on having an irremediable medical condition. And also the fact that they were often asking for it because they were living in poverty, they were homeless, they were uh, not able to, to obtain medical treatment due to our system being very difficult for specific conditions. Well, what about people with mental illness? Uh, there's like in some cities, there's a two year waiting list to get proper mental health care. So two think years. about this. Two you years. could have a 90 day waiting period to die or you can wait two years to get treatment. Now, that depends on where you're living, of course. I understand that it, de- it depends because, of course, uh, if you're living in Toronto, it might be very different than if you're living in Winnipeg. I get this. I understand that's exactly how the healthcare system works in Canada. Uh, nonetheless, how are you going to determine? that a person with a mental illness has an irremediable medical condition. When they walk into the office of the psychiatrist and he looks at them and they seem to have serious issues, how is that psychiatrist going to be able to determine that their condition is irremediable, but this other person's condition is not irremediable and they can get better? And of course, the psychiatrists who are honest are saying, there's no way to determine whether a patient has an irremediable medical condition. But at the same time, the pro-death psychiatrists are saying, bring them on. Bring them on. It's their right. 
You know, it's it's insanity because the same thing is going to happen with the whole Dying with Dignity referral service. People who have mental illness will contact Dying with Dignity, who will send sure. them to a psychiatrist who's pro-death. Sure. And some of them are actually going to be quite excited about all this because they'll be thinking they're providing this person with freedom. You had uh, one doctor that I saw say that she'd killed 400 people and it was the most personally rewarding experience of her life. That's the same Dr. Weeb I was telling you about earlier who approved that one man by Zoom. So it seems like she's in it for herself. I mean, one could argue that she's in it for herself because she likes doing it. Yeah, she's probably done a lot more than 400, actually, because that uh, 400 number comes from last year. She might be getting closer to 500 now. And she has, as I say, a euthanasia clinic. Um, This is the woman who picked the fellow up at the airport. Correct, yeah. In yeah, Vancouver. Wow. And I don't like giving her promotion because obviously no. speaking, uh, Dr. Weeb is happy for the business. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a few others like that actually in Canada who are really pro, and, and pro the, euthanasia. And the uh, euthanasia groups know who they are. Uh, Absolutely. We could, we could go on and on, but we're beginning to run out of time. I do want to ask you this question because I think it's pertinent to the United States. Canada's our closest cultural cousins. And when I used to argue about the problems in Belgium, for example, or the Netherlands, uh, the euthanasia advocates and assisted suicide advocates will say, oh, well, the United States isn't anything like those countries. Well, we are a lot like Canada. We're yes, very so. close. We have a shared history for a period of time. What is it about the Canadian culture that made it such a fertile ground for euthanasia consciousness? Well, I think that we were preconditioned to really accept it, but also the fact of it is I don't actually see Canada as much different than in places like California or Oregon or other places that are very, um, how would you say, rabidly progressive, meaning that they've gone beyond this concept of just uh, liberal thinking, and they've become pretty rabid in their progressiveness. And so the only thing that really makes us different is the fact that your laws currently don't allow for lethal injection. They allow for prescribing lethal drugs that someone would then have to take themselves. And I'm not saying that there's no euthanasia going on in the U.S. I'm just saying that the law doesn't technically allow it. Because once you allow for euthanasia, you're going to get a lot more deaths. Yes. And so the fact that, and the reason is very simple. It's far easier to have someone lethally inject me. It's far easier for me to accept that as a human being, that someone's going to inject me. It's cleaner. It's simpler. It's emotionally and psychologically simpler than for me to actually take that lethal dose myself and drink it down. And it's God awful stuff. Fewer fewer chances, fewer chances for serious consequences such as convulsions and and oh yeah, and, and the so fact forth. of it is, is in the Canadian model, they actually what they did is they they. I'm just telling you stuff that you probably know already. Uh, the Dutch already had a euthanasia killing model, and so what Canada did is they took the same model, but they know they knew by the data that there was some error within the Dutch system, so they decided to double up the drugs. So they're giving them enough drug to to knock out an elephant. So they have very few, of course, uh, issues with people actually living more than a few minutes because they gave them so much drug, it was ridiculous. But anyway, the point of it is, is once you accept euthanasia, you're going to have a lot more death because, uh, once again, that's easier for someone to say yes to. But secondly, you already have the push in the U.S. So the fact that Shavelson had that court case in California to try and allow euthanasia within California, now he failed at it, but he's not going to give up is a sign that the euthanasia lobby in the U.S. really wants Canada's model. They really like that Canada has no. so much euthanasia going on, and the system is so simple, and we have it set up in such a way that it's slick, 
Can we kill so many people? They're excited to follow our lead. And the only way that's not going to happen is if people stand in the way and say, no, you know, we're not going to do this. In fact, you should be rolling back what you have. The assisted suicide concept is no different than euthanasia. It's only different in how we do it. The yeah. concept's the same. A doctor saying to you that your life is not worth living and I'm going to give you a, uh, a lethal dose of drugs that you can go pick up and put in with your whatever applesauce or whatever and, and consume it or that we've, they're going to get a lethal injection. The only difference is how it is delivered, not the concept behind it. It's the same concept of killing right. a certain lives. In the lives United States, for example, Oregon has just done away with all residency requirements. Absolutely. Which yeah. means that it's becoming, it, it will become a suicide tourist destination the and way Vermont's next is. on that list yes so what yeah. what lessons can we learn from what happened in Canada well I think that the disability lobby were absolutely correct from the beginning when they said that uh, these laws do focus specifically on them and the reason is that when you look at the definitions of who qualifies for suicide in the U.S. or who qualifies for euthanasia in Canada, essentially someone with a disability qualifies. The only difference is that you have in the U.S. and most of the states a six-month definition, which of course is fudgy as it is. What does it mean to have a six-month terminal condition? That's hard to define as it is anyway, but at least it's something that you can sort of say, well, they really don't have a six-month terminal case, or maybe they do, maybe they don't. But in Canada, of course, that didn't exist. There was no definition of six months. My point of it is, is these things do gear in on people with disabilities. People with disabilities' lives are not seen as equal. But what about other people? So when you're going through a difficult time of your life, is the answer to living that difficult time, is it the answer that we should kill you because you might feel that your life should be ended or you might feel that there's no reason to continue your life? Or is the answer to provide a proper caring system that everyone's life is worth living? You know, the other thing is they say, oh, well, it's to end suffering. Well, if you look at the data, it's not really to end suffering. Yes, there is a few like that. Um, but the very few like that. And we could actually deal with those cases if we actually really wanted to. We could deal with them by giving them proper care. They they don't need to have to suffer like that. It's not, not necessary. Uh, nonetheless, the point comes down to the fact that uh, society is deciding that certain lives are worth living and certain lives are not worth living. And that's what euthanasia and assisted suicide are all about. <laughs> This is um, this is really disturbing um, because Canada is uh, looked at in the by people in the United States as kind of our more enlightened cousins, and it strikes me that something has happened in the Canadian soul, if you will, just to use a term, that has abandoned compassion and has a the yes. true meaning of it, which means to suffer with, and has actually embraced this what. I guess has been called the culture of death. Am I, am I correct in that? You're absolutely correct. And if you read my writings, I'm constantly calling it abandonment, not autonomy. This is about abandonment. This is about abandoning people to their death rather than providing some sort of freedom and autonomy. It's, it's a lie, but I'll get down further and say, you know, uh, you know, Wesley, you called it right years ago. You were right years ago when you were saying how this was going to affect all of us, and it does affect all of us. Uh, and the fact of it is, is that uh, killing is never an answer to one's medical or physical or and psychological it forces, condition. And it forces family members into really an untenable situation Absolutely. where if your loved one says, I want euthanasia, if you say, no, I'm not going to participate, well, you're abandoning me. What about my choice? And the, But if you go along with it, you're basically agreeing that that person's life isn't worth living. And that puts families in a terrible bind. 
we've had massive division in families. We're actually starting, a, you know, a whole uh, mental health and uh, program and uh, people who are suffering uh, emotionally after the death of a loved one. It's, it's becoming, we're getting lots of calls like this, Wesley. It's, it's incredible how the people are suffering because they had a family member die by euthanasia. And I uh, you know the real truth is that uh, uh, somebody is uh, transferring their pain. They, they feel they don't want to live any longer. Doctors willing to lethally inject them. They're transferring their pain to the rest of the family or the next generation. And then you have the next problem of the justification of it. Well, it must be okay because, uh, you know, grandma died this way. Must be okay. Right. Must be a good and, thing. And of course, we have the new books out. We got the it, book for children that's out now from the uh, that's government. That's right. There was a, the there children's was a book. book. A book published by one of the Right to Die Societies, correct? That basically introduced Well, paid for by Health Canada. I'm sorry? Yeah. It was paid for by Health Canada. All right. Yeah. The Ministry of children's Health book. paid for a yeah. children's book to teach them all about how good euthanasia is and why a loved one might want to do it. At least it was honest because it got right about how they actually die. And this is the other lie. People think that it dies by shutting down your heart. It's a lie. Those drugs don't shut down your heart. They actually shut down your lungs. Keep you from and they breathing. say you die by drowning. It's absolutely true. And the book said it. It said, no, how, these, how, the, how the drugs work is they shut down the person's lungs and they stop breathing. doesn't shut down the heart. And then, of course, how they actually die is by drowning. And they say, isn't that a terrible way to die? Well, we drug them up so bad they, they pretty much don't know the difference. But how do you know they're not suffering? You've put them into sleep first and then, you've, and then their lungs fill up with fluid. Like it's a horrible way to die if you start thinking about it. Uh, but of, uh, they're going to lie to you. What kind of reaction, and then I'll, we're, we're about done here, but what kind of reaction do you receive when you say, wait a second, this isn't compassion, this is abandonment. This isn't autonomy, this is abandonment. How are the, the people of Canada that you interact with reacting to that argument? Well, obviously, Wesley, those, those who agree with me are saying, you're right on the money, Alex, keep going. Right. But the majority of people are, are conflicted. Eh? The majority of Canadians are conflicted. You've got the radical supporters who think it's terrible for me to use this word killing. It's not it's killing. It's descriptive and accurate. It's, it's right on the money. Yeah. <laughs> but it's terrible. And then there's the others who are conflicted. They're conflicted because they don't want to suffer. And they're being told, and they've been told by stories one after the other, after the other, that if we don't have euthanasia, you're going to suffer a terrible death. So we have to have euthanasia. And then when they get to the situation where they're having a difficult time, the doctors are saying to them, without them asking, the doctors say to them, well, you can have maid, you know, you can have maid. So they get this constant bedside requesting. I had a woman call me all upset because her elderly husband was nearing death. And every time a new doctor came in the room, the question was, oh, by the way, have, do you know you can have made? What do you mean, do you know you can have made? What are you talking about? We've been asked five, six times already. We've said we don't want it. Like, why do you have to keep asking us for this? And then you have the others who say, you know, uh, at first I said no, but then, you know, it starts to sound convincing once you've been asked a third or fourth time about made. You know, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. I had a call from a guy, and this is, I know we have to end this call. He called me up because he was all upset because his dad was nearing death, and they all went to visit him in the hospital. They were with him, and in came the maid team. And the maid team then said, well, you know, are you interested in maid? Because we have the paperwork here and everything. And they said, we're not interested in maid. So then they were visiting, doing what they should be doing as a family, visiting, being there with their dad. They went all down to Tim Hortons to get a coffee. They came back in, and the dad said, oh, when you guys were away, that maid team came back in and gasped me again. So obviously they were thinking the only reason he was saying no was because his family was in the room. So there's an, there is a, it sounds to me like there's a real attempt 
by at least some in the medical profession and certainly in politics and advocacy in Canada to make euthanasia the normal way of dying. Absolutely. And they, they would say that maybe the only reason you don't want it is because you've got this other pressure of family members who they wouldn't want it. So therefore, they're, they're influencing you and this kind of stuff. But the constant request for it is ridiculous because all these big hospitals now have a made team. And the made team, what does it do? It, it doesn't only kill you. They go around and they have to speak to everybody. And they so you not only get the organ you. donation issue, you've got the requests going on for made. So you now are nearing death. You may be in palliative care, or let's say they they said you're uh, you're you're we can't do any more treatment for you. You have this medical condition, and you know your death is now inevitable. Now the maid team comes to visit. Well, I don't think that's very helpful. No, no kidding. And that I, I know raises what it the issue human. of yep. whether in a, a single payer plan where your health system is obviously uh, having issues where you can't get. Uh, cancer uh, surgeries for a long time sometimes and, and other things. How much of this is about money? Oh, well, the other side would never say that it has got anything to do with money. But you know that when they were debating Bill C-7, because I think you wrote about it, Wesley, is you know that the government was asked, the uh, how would you say, the guy who's the bean counter in the government was asked to look at how much money the government was going to save. And he looked at how much money they were saving by euthanasia. And then he did an estimation about how much more death would happen with the changes by Bill C-7. And he came up with this massive number, hundreds of millions of dollars they'd be saving. And of course, my response was that's a conservative estimate because they yep. only based it on two weeks. So they said that uh, the average person would uh, not live the last two weeks of their life. So they did a cal calculation based on medical savings for the last two weeks of their life. While a woman who dies with uh, multiple chemical sensitivities at the age of 51 probably lost 20 years of life. Yes, at least. And think about it. She was on disability benefits, so therefore they didn't have to pay her for 20 years. She wasn't going to be in the hospital for 20 years because she's dead. Yep. And let's be brutally honest. You can't come back from death. So all of this situation is uh, pretty ridiculous. So they say it's about choice and autonomy, and really it's about ending choices. And it is about abandonment. It's about abandoning you to your death rather than providing you the care you need. But let's be uh, looking at that. So in fact, it was a conservative number. It wasn't hundreds of millions they'd be saving. It's probably about a billion a year right now. And, if you and look it's at the climbing. numbers, you have 10,000 people well, plus I, I just, killed a yeah, year. Yeah, I just that was last year's numbers. I just published an article uh, today. Uh, we're probably over 13,000 in 2022. Now, why did I say that? Because Quebec increased by 50% in 2022, Ontario increased by 27%, Alberta increased by 40%. Uh, thankfully, Manitoba actually went down. But if you start, Manitoba is not very big. So that this, I'm thankful, but doesn't throw the numbers too much. Uh, I'm estimating that we probably went up by another 30% again in 2022, and that's probably conservative. And so, therefore, we're minimally speaking past 13,000 in 2022. Uh, if you look at the Netherlands and Belgium, it doesn't compare. Like, we are the capital killers now. You are. And, and the capital of killing is actually Victoria, B.C. It's not Amsterdam. It's Victoria, B.C. They've got an, a euthanasia clinic in Victoria, B.C. that is uh, out, uh, outnumbering the made clinic in Toronto by a good mile. Um, the last number showed 7.5% of all deaths were in, in Victoria were euthanasia. Uh, with the increases this year, might be as much as 10% in, in Vancouver Island will be uh, euthanasia. And if this keeps up, eventually it's going to, you know, when you figure that 50% of the people who die may have been hit by a truck and didn't have that kind of long-term Or died instantly or issue, heart attacks. Or, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah you, have, you have an awful oh. lot of people. And in the United States with a, a much larger population, about 10 times the amount of people live in the United States as Canada, 
roughly speaking, you're talking about potential over 100,000 euthanasia deaths if the same a number of percentages exactly, were killed yeah. here as in exactly. Canada. Well, Alex, thanks for uh, being with us. It's really a disturbing issue. And the reason I wanted to talk about Canada again is because there's no way that you can make the argument that Canada is completely different culture than the United States. Uh, what next for Alex Schadenberg? Uh, well, I, I do a lot of talks and I do a lot of writing every day. I go into the office and I'm writing about something or I'm talking to somebody. Uh, so I'll be doing, a, I do a lot of conferences and I speak at a lot of events, um, whether uh, people like it or not, or I, whether I like it or not, it becomes sort of worldwide known. And that's what I do. And yeah, you are hopefully, worldwide. You are worldwide hopefully it's making a difference. Hopefully I'm hoping that there are people in the U S who are waking up to the fact that, uh, Canada could be the same as in the U.S. if you allow it, and please yep. don't allow it. Don't go this road, and actually don't legalize assisted suicide. Yes, yep. it might be a lesser number you're going to get, but you're still doing the same thing, and this is contagious. Killing is contagious. If it's okay for me to kill you for what for one reason, why isn't it okay for me to kill you for another reason? I keep saying this to people. There's only one line in the sand. It is, can I kill you or can I not kill you? If the answer is it's not if I'm not allowed to kill you, then that's, that is the line of the sand. But as soon as I can kill you, the only question remains who can do the killing and what are the reasons? Yep. That's the only questions that remain. Well, Alex, thanks for being with us and uh, we'll talk again. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.